my voice, and I feel badly for you to have to listen to me. It's a strain for me to push the words out, but I suspect it's a strain to listen. But I feel fine, so don't feel sorry for me. We'll make it through this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, give us a beautiful context of what we are just singing about in our worship time together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were of his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me as higher in rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, notice, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray together. Father God, we are here this morning to rejoice in your Son who is God, who existed from before time with you. And he is the creator of all, he is the giver of life. We're going to study that this morning, that rich character of your son in giving to us life and giving to us so fully. I pray that you would sustain us this morning in this study. Give me the ability to continue speaking on these things. And I pray, Father, that our knowledge and understanding of you will be transformative. That it will cause us to be more bonded to you, more devoted to you, more in love with you, more faithful to you to worship you with praises and with great honor because of who you are. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we began, as you know, a new study in John's Gospel with the intention of pursuing the purpose that John had in writing this book. And if you look back at chapter 20, just to refresh our memories in verse 31, we're going to be referring to that quite often throughout this study because it's good for us to know why John wrote this gospel. He makes it clear these things he has written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This makes John's gospel not only evangelistic but apologetic. He's going to tell us about the Son of God. He's going to defend the honor of Christ. He's going to expose the reality of who Christ is and was with the intention that those will believe that hear it and they will receive life. 
And I suppose it may be true that we've looked at that statement of purpose before and presumed that John's gospel is, is solely evangelistic. That is to say, John was anticipating that those who read this narrative on the person of Christ will come to know him as the true Son of God and become a believer in the gospel and then receive the gift of eternal life with that future aspect of glory that is to come. This evangelistic purpose is most certainly a central reality or a central theme of this book. But as we move further into this study, I believe that it's going to become very obvious to us that John did not confine his purpose to merely a future evangelistic kind of, of theme, but also to all the life that Christ would give to us as we come to faith in him, the, Christ that, the, the life that Christ accomplished. And we see that in John chapter 10 from the words of Christ himself where John records him saying that he came into this world to grant life and that we might have that life, what? More abundantly. In other words, John is writing about Christ who is the giver of life and those of us that receive that life are not only going to receive eternal life in heaven, but there's something in the here and now that is going to be changed as well. It's the abundancy of life that is found in Christ and in his person. In John chapter 15, for example, we read about that analogy of the, the vine and the branches, Christ being the vine, and we as believers are attached to that vine and feeding on that vine as branches. And what is the purpose of that analogy? It is to show that we should be bearing fruit for Christ, right? It shows us something different about being alive in Christ and receiving the life that only He can offer. Yes, it does mean eternal life, but it means a more abundant and fruitful life in the here and now. So as we read through this marvelous gospel testimony, we should be asking ourselves in knowing Christ, in understanding Christ as John is presenting, what difference does it make to me as a believer? What changes are taking place? What am I being convicted of? What should I be doing in this life that he's given to me? It's only John's gospel that tells us the story about the washing of the disciples' feet. And you know that story from John 13. Just hours before Christ would give up his life for his people, he takes a towel and water and washes the feet of the disciples. And then he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. And what has Christ done? As he said, he came to serve. And he served the greatest needs of a broken and a sinful and a dead humanity by giving up his life. And therefore, he's showing to us that life in him means a life of service to Christ and to his church. That's what this gospel is telling us. John is also the gospel narrative that tells us more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit than any of the other three synoptics. Chapter 14, 15, and 16 in John's gospel is full with the ministry of the Spirit of Christ who is imparted to God's people once we're made alive in Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ comes to indwell us and John wants us to know from the words of Christ himself exactly what that Spirit is going to do within us. 
This is that fullness of life, eternal, that you and I enter into by faith in Jesus Christ. Our focus this morning will be on the life and the vitality that is found only in the Son of God and how that life illuminates the darkness of this world that we are in, meaning the darkness even of our own lives on account of our sins. According to Ephesians 2, as Christian read this morning, all men are born into sin and are therefore considered by God to be dead to Him in their trespasses and sin. We have to understand that prior to faith in Christ, we were so vile and filthy to a holy God that we could have no fellowship with Him. He viewed us as nothing more than dead spiritually to Him. How marvelous then that we have a Savior that has made us alive. Because of God's richness in mercy, He sent His Son to us. And He worked that precious gift of faith within us. And He made us alive together with Christ. Do you understand what that life means? This is what John wants us to know. He wants us to understand it. John opens his Gospel narrative by showing us a Jesus Christ as the true Son of God. In Christ is life and light. To be found in Him, to be found in that life, is transformative. A genuine faith in Christ will cause dead sinners to be raised up, made alive with Christ, seeding us with Christ, if we can even comprehend that. If He, Christ, is the true giver of divine life, then our lives in Christ will and must reflect that divine character, that divine vitality. John's Gospel shows us how we are then to live as those made alive by Him. It is a marvelous Gospel record, but don't miss the practical application. Don't miss what this means to you and I. I don't believe that we can read this testament on Jesus Christ and remain unchanged to remain indifferent, to remain kind of neutral. If we do, we're not one of His, and we haven't been made alive. For those this morning that may be outside of that living faith, listen to this person of Christ. Hear who John describes Him to be. and Let the Word of God challenge and convict you, and lead you, perhaps, if God be willing, to faith in this Savior. I want to give just a couple of background points this morning that will help us in our study. We're going to be doing that throughout the beginning of this study of John. That is starting with some background information. There is far too much background or um, uh, details about this book and John as the author to do in just one setting because it would probably take up the whole sermon and I don't want to do that. So just giving a few background points in each of our early studies to this this book of John will be helpful. John, as we know, is considered by most all scholars to be the author of this book. John, that is, one of the twelve disciples. Though his name is not mentioned in this book. The name John is mentioned, but it's a reference to John the Baptist. The author of this book only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that is given five times throughout this gospel record. According to reliable church history, John wrote this gospel later on in his life while he was still possibly in Ephesus pastoring there. And it was before he was banished to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman government. So it's estimated that this book was written somewhere around 80 to 90 A.D., 
which means that John was written well after the other three synoptics, and it's presumed by that John had access and was familiar with the other three Gospels. And I think that's important because it may explain why John is considered the fourth Gospel and not one of the three synoptics that John had access to and perhaps was familiar with those earlier three gospel records may explain why his gospel is very different. The three synoptics have a similarity among them. John stands alone. All four are telling us about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But the character of this book, as you well know, is very different. One of the differences that we find in John's gospel is that he begins the story of Jesus earlier in the ministry of Christ than do the others. The others most predominantly dwell in the ministry of Jesus up in Galilee, right? Most of that ministry that you find in the three synoptics is taking place in Galilee. John starts the ministry of Jesus in Judea and Samaria in the earlier moments of his ministry. And we see that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Because John focuses on an apologetic presentation of Jesus Christ, his gospel is far more theological, or we would say Christological. John wants to convince his readers of the true identity of Jesus Christ as God coming to us in true humanity, true God, true humanity, Christ is the God-man. He then gives proofs of that God-man identity by the signs performed by Jesus. And John says at the end of this gospel record that if I had the opportunity to write everything I know about Jesus Christ, there would be more volumes written than this world could hold. In other words, there is a vast volume that the disciples had in their understanding of Jesus Christ. This shows us that John is writing this book so that we may know Christ for who He is. And the purpose behind knowing Christ is both that we might believe, number one, and believing, number two, we might experience life in His name. And that's the point I want us to take in this morning. This is more than just eternity. It is experiencing what true life is in Christ, life in His name. If you're truly convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, your life will show it because His life showed it. Life is found in Christ. What will the life of a believer look like then? To answer that question, we consider this morning the giver of life Himself, Jesus Christ, and what His life looked like. This is where John begins, and it's a good place to begin as we said last week, we considered in verse 1 and 2 how John shows us Jesus Christ as eternal with God. Jesus Christ was there in the beginning with God. He is the very word or expression of God. To know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know the Father, Jesus said. Jesus Christ is one with God. And then John makes very clear Jesus Christ was and is God. And you saw that again in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God? Who is the only begotten? Well, John has already told us the only begotten is the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. The only begotten God 
who is in the bosom of God the Father. He, Jesus, is the word that has explained God to us. Hence, he is the word. He is the word. From those verses, John moves on. And this is where our study picks up in verse 3, down through verse 13, describing Jesus Christ as the giver of life. And this is where I believe John builds on what he declared Jesus to be there in that first verse. He is the word. Remember, that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and creation came into existence. God said, let there be light. And it was so. That's Jesus. He spoke the word. And creation came to be. Creation is very much in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, even beginning in verse 3. But that title that is given to Jesus by John as the Word communicates to us that Jesus Christ reveals to us the very essence and nature of God in who He is and in what He has done. In creation, God spoke and the world was formed. In the future, when Christ returns, He comes as the Word of God, coming to declare the final judgment of God against a sinful and a rebellious world. At the very heart of God's creative genius is that what He created, He also made alive. Made in the likeness of God, mankind, you and I, also have the ability to create. We can take wood and clay and metal and we can form things of beauty and we can form things of function, but unlike God, we cannot make something from nothing. And the things that we do make we cannot make alive. We have no ability to create life. The divine nature of Jesus Christ is revealed in that he spoke creation into existence from nothing, and what he created, he also made alive. He made it to be a living thing. In the first three verses of this text that we're going to look at this morning, verse 3, 4, and 5, we're going to see that life that illuminates the world. That's what John wants us to see in these opening words of his gospel narrative. So our study this morning considers Jesus Christ as the life giver, the giver of life. And this is a perfect complement to what John has just written in those first two verses. Remember the word was. In the beginning was the word. That word was was written in the imperfect tense it is used four times by john in verse one and verse two as we saw last week and it is that word was that is communicating that which is eternally existent jesus christ was he has always been in the beginning he always existed in eternity as the word he always existed or was with god he was always god he always existed as god he was always in the beginning with God. There can be no mistake that John is contending passionately here for the deity of Jesus Christ. There can be people, even among us this morning, that do not believe that Jesus Christ is God come to us in the flesh. But there can be no mistake where John stands. He is, he's making very clear, and this is essential to his gospel, that we know Jesus Christ is not only a man, but he is very much God, the eternally existent, and I will say this morning, self-existent God. But John is not content with those four expressions of Christ in verse 1 and 2. 
he goes on to build on this understanding, showing to us Jesus as the creator who brought all things into existence and breathed into that creation the breath of life. He is the giver of life as the gospel purposes to reveal to us. So I'd like us to consider verse 3, 4, and 5 in this context that Jesus is the giver of life and we will do so in kind of three expressions, past, present, and the prosperity of that giver. Beginning in verse 3, there's both a positive and a negative statement. Beginning with the positive. John writes, all things came into being through him. That's the positive declaration about Jesus Christ as the life giver. All things came into being through him. This is giving us kind of a past tense picture of what Christ did in creation. We recall that even before creation, Jesus Christ was and continues to be. John has already alluded to the creative power of Christ by identifying him as the word, knowing that God spoke creation into existence. Now he continues this argument by declaring Jesus to be the creator of all things. This gospel, bear in mind, was written some 50 years, 50 plus years after John witnessed the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of this Christ. And you realize in this one statement in verse 3 how far John had come in his knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ from the time that John and the other 12 walked with Christ on this earth. I've given in your note sheets a reference to Mark chapter 4. It is good that you go there. This gives us a picture of what the disciples once thought of Jesus. Now early on, and this is one of the differences in John's gospel, early on he shows the disciples to be confessing Jesus as Messiah. The problem is they simply did not know what that meant. They know he was the promised one. They declared him to be the Christ. But clearly we can see from this story in Mark 4, they didn't understand what that meant of the nature and essence of Christ Messiah. In Mark chapter 4, we read of the day when the disciples were in a boat with Jesus Christ, crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a violent storm came up that terrified the disciples. So they wake Jesus up. You see this beginning in verse 39. They wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are dying or perishing? Look at verse 39. He gets up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. What does that sound like? Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and he made that sea. He made the wind. Now the creator stands up and commands the wind and the sea. And what happens? The wind dies and becomes perfectly calm. You get a vision of that mirror-like sea at this moment. Verse 41, it says, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? John chapter 1, verse 3, John now knows, doesn't he? He knows exactly who this Jesus is. The very one who created the wind, all things came into being through him. The very one that created the sea, by the word of his mouth is the one that commands that wind and commands that sea. There are two declarations again in verse 3. 
One is positive, the other is negative, but they are both telling us things about Christ in past and present, about his creative genius. And according to John, this is essential Christology for the church to know about Jesus Christ as Paul also communicates this truth to the church. So I'm taking this John 1 passage and I want us to look at also Colossians chapter 1 because Paul understands the same importance of this understanding of Christ as creator. (coughs) Colossians chapter 1. You're familiar with this text. Verse 16. Colossians 1.16, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, For by Him, by Christ Jesus, all things were created. Does that sound familiar? John and Paul are theologically on the same page when it comes to the person of Christ. All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Not only that, but Paul continues to show that Jesus maintains or sustains or holds on to his creation. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here is the one that not only authored life, he sustains it, he holds it together. What God had created, he also keeps in creation, in a state of creation. It is in these presentations of Jesus Christ that we see Him, Christ, as the one who gives life to what He has made and He continues to sustain and hold together that life. He maintains life. In the book of Genesis, God not only created the universe and all living things in that creation, but we read how He fashioned man from the dust of the ground. A little bit different in God's creative genius because the rest of creation of the universe, He spoke into the existence. But it was different with man, wasn't it? He fashioned man out of the dust of the ground. And then what did He do? He breathed into the nostril of man. And he became a living being. We're talking about the creator as the giver of life. This is Jesus. John and Paul both affirm that this creator God is the son of God, Jesus Christ. God created all things through his son who spoke things into existence and he gave to that creation life and vitality. Does this Jesus then have the ability to raise us up and give us eternal life? As God, as creator of all things, as the sustainer of all things, as the life giver, yes. That's why this is important to John's gospel. Chapter 20, he's the giver of eternal life. Does he have the ability to do that? Does he have the authority to do that? This is a good place to begin this gospel record. This Jesus that promises to give eternal life is the author of life. He's the fountain of life. He's the creator. How important would this be for the redemption of those souls who are spiritually dead to God and in need of spiritual vitality to know? How important was this for you to know when you came to faith? Friends, this is essential. If a Savior came into the world that couldn't do those things, what good would He be to us? It is the giver of life that gave life to all that he created. It's the giver of life that gave himself up on a cross to secure eternal life for all who would believe in him. 
And if you follow along with where Paul takes this next in Colossians 1, we read in verse 19 and 20 that Paul makes this connection between creation and the cross. How essential it is for us to know and understand Jesus as the Creator as well as the Savior. Look at verse 19 of Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through Him, Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, Paul understands it's essential for us to know that Jesus Christ is the Creator God if we're going to affirm Him as the Savior of our souls. How can He possibly give the dead life? How can He possibly raise us up as corpses before the presence of God and make us alive to God if He's not the Creator God? Paul shows Jesus Christ to be the Creator and sustainer of the physical universe, but as the Son of God who possesses all the fullness of the Father's divine nature, Jesus is also the only one qualified to reconcile this fallen and broken and spiritually dead world to Himself by the sacrifice that He would make on the cross by pouring out His blood to make payment for our sins. So John feels it's essential for us to know that He is the Creator of all past things. But look with me back at John chapter 1 and verse 3 because the second part of that verse gives us kind of the negative part. All things came into being through Him. That's the positive declaration. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's the negative expression of the creative genius of this life giver. And this brings us something into the, to the present reality of his life-giving power. So adding to the positive declaration of Jesus as the one who brought all things into being in creation, John then takes this negative declaration to further describe Jesus Christ as the creator and sustainer of what is presently in creation. Nothing exists today. There is nothing in existence in creation that was not made by him. Here is a truth I think that all Christians need to take hold of, especially those that may want to say have that old earth point of view. There's an element in compromising the truth of God's word that also compromises who Christ is. And when people compromise Genesis chapter 1, they do not realize that they are compromising the Son of God. Some who want to be considered Christian but also want to appear somewhat intellectual in the academic world of our social standards today, our cultural standards of the day. They've taken the notion that, well, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior. He came to die for our sins, and He's the Creator. And millions and billions of years ago, He kind of started the ball rolling, and evolutionary processes took over. And you can see what kind of a Christian does this. It's one that wants to compromise between the truth and the reality of not only the Word of God, but of Christ Himself who is the Word of God. And standing with one foot over here in the world as well. I want Jesus. I want God. I don't deny that, but I don't want to be seen as an idiot. And let's face it, the world and all of its academic Jesus thinks that us believers in a Creator are idiots. 
because we believe in a God that is created. Sadly, there's too many Christians that are now embracing kind of both these philosophies that are out there. The claim is that God started the ball rolling millions of years ago. Evolution took over. Again, that only compromises the Word of God. It compromises the Creator Himself. Notice how God's Word addresses this through John's writing of verse 3 by teaching that nothing has come into being got that way apart from Christ. Nothing that exists today exists apart from His creative genus. D.A. Carson translates this phrase in verse 3 from the Greek this way. What was made was in no way made without Him. So everything you see outside today in creation and in this room in creation was in no way made apart from Christ. When we look at cows or horses or birds or man himself, these came to be that way as a product of the Word of God. And who is the Word of God? It is Jesus Christ, the Creator. When He created all things and again gave life to His creation, He did not leave anything to chance. He didn't leave anything to random evolutionary processes. He is the one that created what we see today, and He also sustains it. He holds it together, and He does so for His purposes. Nothing has come into being in our present world that has come to be or that exists apart from Christ because he not only created it, he sustains it today. It's his work. And once again, we find Paul preaching this same truth, the same Christological reality to the churches. And I refer this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is now speaking or writing to the church in Corinth. And it's on a completely different subject not at all related to the gospel or evangelism. But here in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is dealing with a problem that arose within the church. Because Corinth was a city that was planted in the midst of idolatry and false gods, and as Paul says, false lords. The church was plagued with the reality, what do we do when our common Christian lives cross paths with the idolatrous world around us? And the subject here is the eating of meats, as you know. Paul is going to say, Those, the meat you eat is nothing. Christian life is not about eating and drinking. What goes into the body means nothing. And you have the freedom to eat and to drink. However, he says, don't use that freedom to cause somebody else to stumble. But listen to how he explains this practical reality in Christian living in verse 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, speaking of idols, false idols, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. One author suggests that this passage in 1 Corinthians 8 is one of the highest Christological statements found in God's Word, again emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. So it stands right there with John chapter 1, doesn't it? One thing should be clear from this. Paul understands that there is but one God, and notice how he's placed Christ the Son and God the Father on equal footing. 
Both father and son are credited here with the work of creation and the sustaining of that creation. But what we also want to observe is that God's creation exists for him and it exists through him. Everything was created for his purpose. Everything is created for his determinations. Everything exists because of him and for him. Nothing is cre- in creation is left to chance. Nothing is without purpose. And nothing exists apart from Christ. John writes that the him in this creative accomplishment is Jesus Christ. What this shows is that Jesus Christ is the giver of life. He is the fountain of life. All creation and all life found in creation has come about and passed from him and it has presently sustained him. From, uh, from him. The pre-existent Christ created everything and apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. Again, we can look around in our world today and see the stars in the heavens, the plants, planets in the sky. We can look at this globe and see life and vitality and we can know, I know that creator. I know the one that created that tree, that bush, that person, that baby that cow, that bird, it is Christ. It didn't just happen. It is created by the Creator. It is sustained by that Creator. And this brings us back to John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Because of that past creative ability, because of the present uh, giver of life, we see John declare that Jesus then is a prosperous giver of life. In him was life. The life was the light of man. He's just described Christ as the creator of all, everything. And then he says, in him was life. There was always life. It's that was word again. He was always life. He continues to be life. And he is the life that was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness And the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9 then builds upon this further. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Light and life are two expressions that we're going to see throughout John's gospel. They're both major themes, and he brings it up here right in the beginning of this narrative. We know that Jesus is the creator of physical life, and we just read about, or physical light, as we just read about last week in Genesis chapter 1. But here the use of light and darkness has another connotation and John is going to continue with that connotation throughout this gospel record. Frederick Bruce writes, and you may want to make note of this, light is a synonym of goodness and truth. Light is a synonym of goodness and truth, while darkness is a synonym of evil and falsehood. So when John speaks of light and speaks of darkness, he doesn't have the physical creation of light and darkness in mind here. Because physically, as John writes this letter, the world was not in darkness. The sun was still coming up every morning, lighting the world. It's not physical darkness here. So he transitions from physical creation to now light and dark in its spiritual realm, its spiritual dimension. The truth being communicated by John in verse 4 and 5 is the beginning of his gospel here, account of Christ, is that he, Christ, is the source of all life 
and life in Him illuminates the truth and the righteousness of God, we would expect the Word of God to do that. Jesus is the expressed image of God. He declares God. He comes to this world illuminating the goodness and the truth about God. And then in verse 5, we read that the light shines in the darkness, which is a reference to Christ coming to this world of evil and falsehood. But a word that we want to make note of this morning in verse 5 is the word comprehend in the New American Standard, which is better translated. Some of your versions will say overcome, mastered overpowered the light came into this world and the darkness of this world could not overcome the light could not overpower or master the light what we understand from this is that when jesus christ came into this world of darkness his light could not be overcome by the world's darkness he then is a what a very prosperous life giver The darkness of this world could not extinguish his light. He effectively illuminated the goodness and the righteousness, the truth about God himself. And the reality is, if Christ had failed and the darkness had overcome, there would be no point for John writing this record. In fact, when he came to verse 20, or chapter 20 and verse 31, He would be telling us a lie because to believe in this Jesus couldn't give us eternal life if he came into this world as light and the darkness overtook him. If we are to believe that Christ is the successful giver of life, then we must understand that Jesus has what it takes to do so. And John wants us to understand he does. He does have what it takes. Here again, John begins his commentary on Jesus Christ by showing him to be equal to God. The relationship between God and the Word in John is later in John's Gospel going to be shown as a relationship between Father and Son. So what he writes here in the first part of his Gospel is a parallel to what we see written in other places. By example, chapter 5 and verse 26. John writes there, Chapter 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So both with God and the Word, John chapter 1, and with the Father and Son, John chapter 5, there is self-existing life of God. The vitality, the life that we're talking about in Christ, that's inherent in his nature, is a self-existing life, as D.A. Carson writes. Humanity is not self-existing. Even the most determined atheist has got to concede that reality. When men do away with God and their thinking, they have got to create an alternate source of life, and the best that they can come up with is evolution, or the theory of evolution. And that presupposes that life started itself. And yet that life that started itself cannot sustain itself. It isn't self-sustaining. It isn't self-existing. It's eventually going to flicker out and die. That's as true with me standing here today. I'm alive at this moment. Eventually I'm going to flicker out and die. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the understanding that He, Christ, 
was the eternally existent with God who created all life and nothing came into existence without him. And when he came into this world of darkness as the eternal God of life, his life illuminated the righteousness and truth of God and the darkness of man's sinfulness could not, could not overpower it, could not overcome it. So he is a prosperous giver of life. But what life does John have in mind here? And scholars wrestle with this a bit, not only because of the immediate context, but also because of the general context of the whole Gospel of John. What life are we talking about here? Is it physical life? Is it spiritual? Is it eternal? If you look at chapter 20, verse 31, it seems to be eternal. But clearly, verse 3 has implied a very physical creation of life by Christ. The specific context, though, what we need to realize here, the specific context is not the creation, the physical creation of life. It is not even the darkness or the fallen creation. We have got to understand that our text is not examining life in creation itself, nor is it directly examining the corrupted life of fallen man in his darkness, though both of those are named here in these beginning verses. But our text, our subject, is all about Jesus Christ and the life that is found in him. John has carefully opened this gospel by showing us Jesus as eternally existent with God, as the God who created all things and in who, and in who was life from the very beginning of time. What we are examining then is divine life. We can't focus just on physical life or spiritual life or eternal life. We are looking at divine life, the life that is found in the person of Christ. It's a life that is able to create physical life, to create humanity and to give humanity a spiritual nature. His divine life is eternal, it's self-existent, and it depends on nothing outside of himself for that existence. I've given on your note sheet just a couple of verses from John's Gospel. And you can follow along with these. But it tells us what kind of life we're talking about in verse 4 and 5 that Christ had. In John chapter 4 and verse 14, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob that the water that he has to give to her will become within her a well springing up into eternal life. And therefore, what Christ has to offer of himself, of his self-existent life, is eternal life. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said that he is the bread of life, and those who partake of him will never hunger again, teaching us that his divine life is fully satisfying. But there it's speaking about not physical life, is it? He was using an analogy of his own life. You partake of me like bread. If you eat bread, it sustains you physically. If you partake of me, you will have spiritual life. That takes us right to Ephesians 2 again. We were once spiritually dead to God. But God, rich in his mercy, has made us alive together in Christ. So we're not just talking about eternal life. We're talking about spiritual life. John chapter 8. And verse 12, Jesus said that those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, emphasizing the spiritual life that he gives to us. John chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus said he gives to his sheep eternal life and they will never perish because of this giving of life. 
So what life are we talking about in Jesus Christ? It is most certainly eternal life. It is most certainly spiritual life. That in Christ we are made spiritually alive. But it doesn't stop there. In John chapter 11 and verse 25. In the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Remember before he raised Lazarus. The declaration he made of himself. He said that he is the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in him will live even if he what? Dies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we know we're going to die one day. But is there not a resurrection coming? He is the author of physical life as well. So when we consider Jesus Christ as life, we're talking about spiritual life and vitality in Christ. We're talking about eternal life in Christ. We're talking even about the renewal of the physical life. That even though we die, we're going to be raised up spiritually in newness of life. This is the one we're talking about. The life found in Jesus Christ that John writes of is is his own divine life that he gives. It is physical. It is spiritual. It is eternal. And when John calls men and women to believe in Christ, who is the giver of life, it is to be understood that the life that Christ has to give will both raise up our physical bodies, bodies in a glorious resurrection. It is a life that brings us back from the spiritual death that is caused by our sins. And it is life eternal and unending in its glory and in its vitality. This is a richness and a fullness of life that belongs to God himself. The darkness of this fallen world was not able to put out this light. Jesus said that he had the authority to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again, and no one else does. Not Rome, not the Jews, not Satan himself. He came to give his life as a ransom payment for the sins of his people. And all those who believe are raised up to newness of life in him. Jesus is no longer in this world as he was back during his earthly ministry. But the life and the vitality that he's breathed into his redeemed church continues to be the light of his life in this dark world. And the darkness is still not able to overtake it. This is true not because you and I are such devoted followers of Christ, but rather because we have his life in us. And now we are his light. As we bring this subject to a close this morning, I want us to consider a couple of points again from God's word that have a practical application for us as we consider the life that we've received from Christ. And if you're here today and without Christ, it is the life that you can receive in Christ by faith. We're about to take a memorial to the sacrifice that Christ made that we can have this life. The bread and the cup representing the bodily sacrifice And the dying that he did for us in payment of our sins. And we partake of that by faith as we are going to partake of the bread and the cup this morning. But it's a life that reverses the physical death that all men must endure. It is a life that marks or makes our spirit alive to God. And it gives to us eternal unending life and fellowship with him in the glory of his heavenly kingdom. How should we respond to receiving this light? More to the point, what does living in this life and vitality of Christ look like? John is going to show us this in his gospel. But just a couple of points to leave us with. And these are going to dovetail with the three points I left with last week. 
But there's a reason we're doing that. And I want us to see these points from three different scriptures, beginning in Revelation chapter 4. And here we have that eternal vision of Christ who is seated in his glory on his throne. And his people, his church, the elders, they're gathering around to behold the glory of this Christ that is seated on the throne. And at verse 9, we read these words down through verse 11. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Note the cause of worship here. The cause of worship of the eternal heavens gathered around Christ. Jesus is worthy to receive worship because he created all things, and by his will they continue to exist. In other words, here is the giver of life, the author of life, the fountain of life. And I suspect that when we look at a heavenly scene like that, most of us are going to view that as a future occupation. When we get to heaven, we're going to be doing that. We're going to be doing it forever and ever. But for our earthly journey, we may be content to do that once a week on Sunday morning. This passage reminds us that the Lord's people praise and honor Christ because He is worthy of it. And that means that he's worthy of it today, not just in eternity. Therefore, the life given us is a life of eternal praise. Eternal, not just in the future, but in the present reality as well. Are we living lives that are praising him because of his worthiness? Every moment in worship of him. Every moment to honor him because he's worthy. Then... And he's worthy now. Look at Colossians chapter 3, number 2. Colossians chapter 1, I'm sorry. Point number 2. Colossians 2. Picking up where Paul left off in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The life given is a life of steadfast holiness. Observe that after Jesus Christ is described as the creator, as Paul has done, the sustainer of life, after he is credited with reconciling humanity to himself through his bloody sacrifice, we learn that he did it all for what reason? To make us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And then Paul continues by exhorting the church, be firmly established and steadfast in that gospel faith that has given us that life in Christ that makes us holy and blameless and steadfast. Therefore, daily as we're living, 
this Christian life. We continue to be the light of his life as that life is a life of steadfast holiness. I'm not talking about mere external morality here. We're talking about a life before God that is given over wholly to him, set apart completely for him, blameless and beyond reproach. Does that describe your life this morning? And number three, Philippians chapter 1. This is perhaps familiar to us, given our study of Philippians. But this is a verse that came immediately to mind when I was thinking about this conclusion. Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What kind of manner of life would that be? What, what is worthy of Christ and His gospel? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And therefore, life given to us by Christ is going to be a life of community service. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is granted to us to share in the divine nature of His life. And if we're going to conduct our lives in a manner that's worthy of that gospel, Paul says, you better be found striving together. What does that word mean? Working, laboring together. In devotion to Christ, serving His church, serving His gospel. As believers, we now live in the light of Christ's life and vitality given to us through His sacrifice on the cross. Certainly, He is worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, our holiness, worthy of our devotion. And notice that Philippians 1.27 follows chapter 1 and verse 6. He who started that work is going to complete that work. This is the gospel. This is the Savior that has given us life and He has started a work in us. He's going to complete that work. He is the Creator. And if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, we're going to be found standing together, serving Christ together, serving one another together in a way that illuminates the goodness and the glory of God Himself. Father in heaven, I thank you for the testimony of your servant John and how he's given to us such a rich record of your son. A narrative that exposes the reality of who your son is and was. And I pray that as we take the bread and the cup now, that the reality of his person, his power to save and to give life, is very real to each and every one that celebrates this memorial. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.